Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. Writing about war in the 1820s, the great Prussian military strategist Karl von Clausewitz once said, well, to be honest, he said many things about war being politics by their means, about waging war being very simple, but that in war the simplest things become very, very difficult, about how friction for employing force waylays the best laid plans about how no one starts a war, or rather, no one in his sense ought to do so, without first being clear in his mind what he intends to achieve by the war and how he intends to conduct it. And this is not to mention what he said about the center of gravity. Today, Clausewitz's insights are considered truisms. Unfortunately, in 1835, the U.S. Army embarked on a putative operation against the Florida Seminole to achieve political objectives by warlike means, but doing so without first consulting Clausewitz or his insights. It did not appreciate how in this war the simplest things would be very, very difficult, or how, without a clear understanding of how friction impacts the execution of its simplest orders and operations. Most egregiously, the Army embarked on this war without being clear in its organizational mind how it intended to successfully achieve its war aim of subduing and removing Seminole from Florida to the Oklahoma Territory. In its defense, there were good reasons for the Army not consulting with Clausewitz, however. First, the Prussian master strategist wrote in German. An English translation was decades away from publication in the United States. Second, he never completed his magnum opus appropriately called von Krieg, or on war. Third, and most forgivably, the army did not seek Clausewitz's advice because he had died roughly five years earlier in 1831. He left behind his notes and scribbles to his widow to compile into a useful, if not altogether readable, book form. Fortunately, however, for listeners of The Seminole Wars, we have joining us today U.S. Army Colonel and War College graduate J.P. Clark. J.P. is a military historian, a military strategist, and keeps a well-worn copy of Von Krieg, or On War, by Karl von Clausewitz in his back pocket. He will discuss how the army muddled along in the Second Seminole War without a copy of On War and its collective haversacks to inform and guide its strategy, operations, and tactics. J.P. Clark, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Hey, thank you very much for having me. You take a strategic view of war. How did you come to become a military strategist? I, I will, will keep it short, but uh, in brief, uh, you know, the, the Army has uh, a dual-track system for our, our specialties. So you enter what we call the basic branches, and then uh, by the time you become a major, you can go into a specialty field. And so uh, I began as an armor officer, so on, on tanks, uh, so I guess for the first nine years of my career. And ever since then, I've, I've gone into the, uh, the strategist career field and looking at you know, strategic plans and policy for about uh, 14 years. Uh, and so we tend to work in, in high-level headquarters, usually three-star uh, commanders or higher. For me, the reason I got into it was a byproduct of, of history and that I was the, the same sort of schooling that we look for Army strategists was actually what I was undergoing as I was on my way back to the uh, to West Point to join the, the history department faculty there. And so it kind of became a, a, a nice 
uh, obvious thing to do, and uh, and actually a lot of our Army strategists are, you know, a good portion of us did teach at West Point as well, uh, and so you can kind of see the doing history and then the social sciences. Uh, a, a strong background in that really helps you as you think about, uh, you know, operations and strategy into the future. This is a sidebar to that. Are we teaching West Point cadets strategy? It seems like they ought to learn tactics, maybe the basic military theories. Well, then, so that's uh, the the course that we teach. Uh, the cadets have a a great uh, tradition of shortening titles, and so they call it mill art. But the the full title is history of uh, of the military art and operations. And so our focus was really on the operational level, and so. Uh, you know, campaigns and, and, and military commanders uh, and not getting into a lot of depth on the, the tactics, although certainly you can't understand operations without understanding uh, the tactics. But, you know, we didn't go into the, the, the minute detail about, you know, how Napoleon, you know, uh, you know used his units. And uh, at the same thing, you also to understand operations, you kind of, tend to get off into the strategic level as well of why is this war being fought, um, you know, what was the relationship of the Army with society, and so we tended to, to focus on the operational level, but certainly strategy, you know, there was always those discussions were lurking in the background, and so we would we, touch on those a little bit, but that wasn't the main focus of what we were doing. And of course, as new lieutenants, they're not going to be strategists, but there would be a gaping vacuum if they didn't understand strategy and operations and how it affects the tactics that they're charged with implementing. That there's, there's certainly that, and you know, there's an argument that uh, while they may not necessarily be strategists in the terms of that they're directing resources and, and, and allocating them across theaters, uh, some of the things that they can do can certainly have you know, strategic effects. Typically, if this is, you see this in, in the bad parts where, you know, somebody, you know, commits some sort of criminal uh, act and then the, the enemy runs with it and, and suddenly the, the war has changed because of, you know, some acts of, of stupidity and immorality. But also uh, a new course that was started up by uh, Secretary of Defense Esper when he was the Secretary of the Army was he directed uh, West Point to have a uh, class on the relationship of the Army and society. Uh, which is something important for you know uh, our, our lieutenants to understand as they're just stewards of the profession. You know what is their relationship to the American public, and and I'm happy to say that uh, the introduction of my book was actually used in that course uh, to help them kind of understand those intersections of where 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 they join up as an institution with the uh, with larger society. How has being a military strategist shaped your understanding of the Second Seminole War? I guess the, the the number one rule of strategy is it's, it's never easy, and there are always you know many layers just behind uh, beyond the fighting, and so this kind of gets into you know our discussion we were just having. Uh, you you can't understand it only by looking at the tactics, uh, only looking at you know the military operation. Uh, one of the, the very first uh, things that the uh, you know, strategists are who are really well steeped in you know the you know, Karl von Clausewitz and and uh, on war and you know, he famously said, somebody gave him a, a military problem, and they said, okay, so how would you move your armies here? He's like, I can't solve this without reference to the policy. What am I fighting for? What am I trying to achieve? And, you know, the Second Seminole War is very rich in that, in terms of there's, you know, multiple kind of stakeholders 
uh, within the, uh, so this is politics and policy kind of intermingling, slaveholders uh, wanting to take some of the prisoners, the Afro-Indians and the Maroons, and, and to, to use them as property, trying to get land. And you see, you know, changes in administration as we go from uh, Jackson to Van Buren and then Tyler. Different presidents, you know, what, what they wanted out of the war changed over time. And so by just looking at, you know, a map and seeing, you know, what are the daily courses of armies or patrols, you would never really understand what was going on without reference to that larger, you know, strategic and policy context. And then also what the, the American people wanted out of it, you know, very different from the shock of, you know, 1835 and the Dade Massacre to, to later on when people are just kind of losing interest in it, uh, something that, uh, that kind of resonates with a lot of folks today as we talk about Iraq and Afghanistan as well. So sometimes there's, there's, there's echoes of history. So Clausewitz famously said, war is politics by other means. That's a paraphrase. We see this in the U.S. government's actions regarding removal of the Seminole. It tried to do so diplomatically. It tried to do so economically, but it could not get wholesale acceptance. So the U.S. government prepared to use the army to forcibly remove the Seminole. They risked this war to obtain a political solution, and the army got war, and the Seminoles got war waged against them, politics by other means. After failed efforts to dissuade the U.S. government from forcing their removal, how did the Seminole employ war as a demonstration of politics by other means in their own way? In military terms, we've talked about you know the other side of the hill, and so from the other antagonists' uh, perspective, to the extent of my knowledge, in terms of the different groups within the Seminoles, you know they also had this kind of divided, different aims in terms of the, the Maroons and the Afro Indians. The the main part was not being enslaved, and so for some of those, and I know that there were were efforts on the U.S. Army side to exploit this, that uh, as long as you were able to give them what they called freedom papers, you know, they might be willing to go out to Oklahoma in order to maintain their freedom and not be sold back into to slavery or to be taken into slavery. Perhaps, you know, they had been born free, but some of the, 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 the Florida settlers wanted to, to take them as slaves. Then there's also the, uh, you know, the Seminoles who don't want to leave Florida. That's, that's what they, they've known. And so they're fighting in order to just to, to hold on to what they have. And so there's a there was a certain possible split politics on both sides, kind of moderated how much anybody was able to to, to go towards that. And a lot of times there's a lot of resistance from the Florida settlers that was felt either directly to local commanders or by way of the administration, you know, to you know not allowing the army to deport some of the Afro-Indian and Maroons. But you know, there's an interesting you know element of of how much control you know the civilian government had. A lot of times, you know, commanders were able to kind of follow through on this and as a way of ending the war earlier by removing the reason why some of the Seminoles were fighting. But for the the most part, when you have a, a U.S. Army patrol or a column coming down, I think that there is a lot of tactical resistance to those that wasn't necessarily driven by a larger strategic approach. It was simply resist and survive, um, particularly when, when the Army started moving more towards the the, uh, the the method of going after their subsistence, going after the cattle, going after the farms. You're you're just trying to to, to stay alive and 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 keep your your means of of subsistence for you and your family.
there was overall policy and there was an overall strategy in a grand sense of moving Indians across the Mississippi and then opening lands up to settlers. But after the Dade Massacre, it's not clear the Army actually thought of a strategy as opposed to a retribution or a punishment campaign against the Seminole. And then we'll figure it out from there. What strategy might you have proposed given the circumstances and limitations of those times after the Dade Massacre? Well, that's, uh, I, I think you fit on, you know, a very important part uh, of this in that what was the public expectation and there was a demand for retribution. And so certainly, uh, you know, Scott as the kind of the first commander who's going to be sent down onto the scene. So there's that element pushing him to try to, to get a, in some ways we'd call it a psychologically satisfying large battle. Also, his background, he was very much influenced by the French and particularly Napoleon. And so I think that he also wanted a, a large battle. And, and that was what the, a lot of the emphasis was on within the U.S. Army was these European-style clashes. And so you have both the public and policy imperative and uh, personal views and organizational culture all kind of driving towards trying to pursue this this battle, which if the Seminoles had agreed to to stand and fight as they would, you know, later on at, at Okeechobee, or if the army had been faster and, and able to, to really kind of drive home towards them, you know, that was a good strategy if you could do it. The problem was the enemy wasn't willing, and it was really kind of beyond the capacity of the army to move uh, so quickly, particularly at the beginning when you have a lot of forces coming in and, and nobody was quite figured out how to maneuver and, and the field craft of operating the Florida campaign. So in, in hindsight, it, it's pretty clear that the what you know John Grenier called the first way of war for America, of the food fight and going after subsistence, was the most promising. And really, that had been the formula that you know since the early 1600s, uh, all the way up and through when we get into you know the the Apache uh, campaigns of, of the late 19th century. So you know a couple decades after the Seminole War, that had been the one consistent strategy that had worked out, uh, or I should say, probably operational approach that had worked out for. The army, and that was not what they initially pursued. Clausewitz talks about the center of gravity. What is the center of gravity as defined by Clausewitz, and what did the army think the seminal center of gravity was as the war began, and how did it then change? There are a couple of different interpretations, of, as you know, of, of center of gravity. Um, but the, the classic Clausewitzian is, you know, is that the motive force that uh, allows one side or the other to uh, employ their um, their military instrument. Under that strict interpretation, there's only one. As we look at the two different strategies that the the army employed, you can actually you can make the case that perhaps that there was two. Um, that either the, the true motive force in, in the most literal sense was actually food, cattle, crop, you know, bases of subsistence that uh, allowed the Seminoles to stay alive. If the army had been able to find a large band of warriors and annihilate them, uh, you know, that arguably would have been a, a center of gravity, but that required a little bit of cooperation uh, on the Seminoles' part, and they just were not going to, to offer that up. And so that center, you know, potential center of gravity never really appeared, really came down to the, the logistics aspects of it. Although one thing we should throw in is not just food, but also, uh, you know, gunpowder. And, you know, this is where sometimes some of the army accusations were that actually you had some of the Florida settlers were actually selling some of the uh, means of, of resistance in terms of, of armaments to the Seminoles. I'm not sure how much, how widespread that was and whether it was just grousing or whether that was really something that helped to support the Seminoles. But that, that the basic logistics was, was certainly 
their center of gravity, and that's eventually what the Army started going after pretty pretty consistently with varying degrees of effectiveness. What challenges arise if you mistake the true center of gravity? For instance, if you think the U.S. Army is the center of gravity when actually the center of gravity, which is something you need to influence to bring the war to a conclusion that favors your side, if you think the U.S. Army is the center of gravity when it's actually the U.S. government administration. There's the worry uh, that you, you might uh, be doing something that is pointless uh, if you're pursuing something that isn't necessarily going to lead to the uh, reaction you want, or you might actually be doing something that's counterproductive. And so if being able to strike with date, um, strike at one command, that actually makes the American public cry out for this, this, this large expedition of retribution, then you might actually end up taking a step backward from, from whatever your policy objective is. You know, the difficult aspect from the, the, the Seminole side is if we were to say that it is, you know, the American government, was it within their means in order to actually get to that? And so something else that, you know, Clausewitz will talk about is, that the center of gravity in some cases might actually be very well protected and shielded because it is so critical to the enemy. And so it might simply be beyond your means in order to affect it. And so possibly you make a, 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 a pretty good argument that that might have been the case for the Seminoles and that they had to, to simply just kind of hope that the, the American public would and, and support for the war would dissipate rather than being able to, to take direct action to make that occur on their own grounds just because it was beyond their means. Clausewitz said in war, everything is simple, but the simplest thing is really hard, made hard by the concept of friction. What was his concept of friction, and what type of friction did the army encounter when they sought to remove the Seminole? Uh, and this is, you know, one of his, his key contributions, and, and you can certainly see it in spades. And so, uh, uh, throughout the, the war, but, you know, going back to, you know, the the, the earlier example of Scott and his initial plans was that you know he's going to have three converging columns. The friction is typically is seen in, in misunderstandings or the difficulty, uh, and so you know mis missed orders or somebody you know doesn't follow through energetically, and just all of the things from the general's mouth on down through. The, the private executing on the ground, all the things that can go wrong because of human frailties, lack of, of knowledge, then um, just, you know, the, the, the happenstance of, of the battlefield. Certainly they did not realize how much the environment uh, was going to impede their operation. That was, was pretty careful in terms of his logistics preparations, and so he spent a lot of time putting it together before actually, you know, striking off on the campaign, trying to make sure he had all the supplies ready. But the ability to um, to move and supply forces, it almost always is harder than, than it looks like when you're just looking at the map. Then you start getting the illness as another form of friction. And that, you know, 19th century armies, you know, the sanitation was never good, so they always kind of figured that there would be some sick lists. Um, but uh, the uh, amount of, of casualties to the environment was extraordinary, particularly later on in the war. And uh, so that also was another form of friction that wasn't necessarily anticipated, but certainly slowed down operations and allowed them to never quite um, be able to, uh, to, to get the stand-up fight that they wanted to on their terms, uh, as, as Scott had anticipated in, in 1836. Today, when we hear the term allies, we think of forces from another country. If we use the term in a broad sense, the Army had allies in that it had sister services. It had Marines and sailors that it was able to call on in the war. It had militia 
and volunteers that it could call on, and maybe just some of the white cracker populace who might uh, engage at some point in this conflict. What kind of allies could the Seminole call upon to assist in their resistance efforts? We're going to use a pretty broad definition of it, and certainly there was some help coming from uh, the environment, uh, as we just discussed. I mean, it is a very difficult place to conduct operations with 19th century technology and with an expectation of wanting to not fully give ourselves over as an institution into the normal way. An interesting aspect was the Second Dragoons under Colonel William Harney, where he wanted to, to, to put the soldiers into a Seminole-like dress just because it was better suited to the environment. And there was some uh, resistance to that because there was the sense, and probably not unfounded, that by giving up some of those, the, the things that, you know, the outward uniform appearances, that that might be leading to a lack of discipline as well, which, and particularly in the case of Harney, who was a very cruel, he was pretty far over to the extreme. You can imagine that a very, going to, uh, you know, Apocalypse Now and Colonel Kurtz, that, you know, his methods could become unsound very quickly as, as, as he went native, um, meant in, in the worst sense of essentially, you know, going towards cruelty. And so the environment was, was certainly an ally, as well as, you know, kind of the happenstance of events. There, there could be, you know, certain breaks, you know, public opinion, uh, the depression of, of 1839 uh, could have been uh, considered an ally in uh, reducing the, the will of, of the American uh, public and the American government to continue on with the war. So there are all sorts of ways that it could kind of come in, as well as, you know, outside actors. Uh, I think we see this more towards, you know, the first Seminole War, where we have a lot of stateless folks. And so, you know, there's the two Britons who are, are executed by Andrew Jackson. And so the frontier is, is a pretty wild place. And so you get all sorts of, of interesting, interesting folks and interesting tie-ups of convenience uh, in those kinds of fights, which makes it something that we should study today because a, a lot of the problems that we think are very modern in terms of non-state groups and uh, ungoverned spaces uh, were certainly were certainly there in, in, in spades uh, in the 19th century. What strategic choices did the Seminoles have as they were facing removal in 1835? Were there any good options for them? You know, this is uh, a bit outside of my knowledge. I don't know enough about their internal dynamics. What they basically adopted was, you know, the resistance, you know, kind of like tactical resistance to when column or patrol was coming in, choosing to flee it or choosing to ambush it. Did they have the capability to strike out in more concentrated ways to threaten some of the frontier settlements? Could they have mustered up? Was there enough internal cohesion amongst, as we talk about, you know, Seminoles, Afro-Indians, Maroons, um, do that and kind of gain the initiative uh, rather than merely react? I, I don't know. And in some ways, you can actually say that the, the two departures that they took, one in, you know, the Dade Massacre and killing, you know, over 100 you know, soldiers and, and officers in a single swoop, and then also taking a stand at Okeechobee, those actually were, were mistakes. And so maybe the, the strategy of, of simply trying to outlast might have been the one that, that they adopted most of the time, and to a certain extent worked. Um, there was not the, the wholesale removal that had been the, the desire at the beginning of the Second Seminole War. Uh, you can say that maybe that actually ended up being the best option rather than a large operation. There were so many times during the Second Seminole War where the Army was ready to say yes. 
And the army did say yes, but got overruled from Washington. Yeah, no, then this was uh, a bit of frustration. Uh, I think uh, there was a, a number of commanders who just wanted to quit. I think both Taylor and Jessup asked to be relieved and were told they had to, you know, to stay on a little bit longer. You know, one of the, the interesting aspects was the relationship of the army to both the, the the local settlers and to the Seminoles. Sam Watson, who I, I think is probably the foremost historian of this period, points out that there's a lot of letters and an actually act that was taken by the army uh, showing, you know, respect for the Seminoles. Uh, and so Osceola Jumper, who, you know, kind of the architect of the Dade Massacre, you, you'd think that he would be Osama bin Laden, enemy number one, and that, that uh, there would be nothing but hatred. But actually he was, you know, was given a, a burial with honors that would befit an, an enemy commander of, of a European-style army. So there was a lot of respect. But you know, one of the things that Sam Watson hypothesizes is that some of that, was 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 genuine and just based off of the you know the the, the great martial you know fighting capacity and endurance of the Seminoles. But part of it was also that the army disliked some of the local settlers so much that that kind of caused them to view the Seminoles in a you know, a more positive light even than they would have otherwise. Which is an interesting argument. Of course, that's something you can't necessarily prove. But uh, certainly, there's there's plenty of evidence and grousing amongst the officer corps of, hey, we're here to try to get more land for these people who they, they often looked down upon. They viewed them as being rapacious, as being uh, untrustworthy, greedy. And so, and, and sometimes they thought that the, the settlers were deliberately stoking the war in order to also just kind of make some money off of the army uh, you know, in terms of contracts and things like that. And so there was definitely a thought of, why am I here away from my family, you know, risking disease and death for these people when the, the enemy is somebody who I, I can both kind of admire and also really all they want to do is just be left alone. And so that's an interesting dynamic that comes out of, out of the, the, the Second Seminole War. And you don't see in the first because, you know, Jackson's army was in some ways very regionally, it were kind of a, was more consonant with the, uh, the regional politics in terms of the way people, uh, the, the officers view things. There are various strategies to obtain an end result that one desires in war. One is exhaustion, one is annihilation, one is attrition, and one is just flat out dominance on the battlefield where the enemy capitulates. Which of these did the army employ and or was able to successfully achieve? Uh, another great historian who kind of touches on this time, Brian Lynn, has, has said that there's probably more strategies than you know the traditional sort of articulation, and that typically American wars have caused us, as you kind of alluded to, to pursue a couple of different ones. If you were to reduce it to just one, then, then certainly I think you would say that the, the army prevailed through a war of exhaustion by going after the means of subsistence for the Seminoles, but in terms of the, the, the kind of textbook definitions, that's not quite right, because one, you know, the, the, the seminal will still was there at the end, and you had folks who were left over and whose descendants are still there today after the second and the third uh, who remained, and killing off some of the element in terms of removing their desire to fight, and this is where some of the Afro-Indians and the 
Orleans, giving them the freedom papers. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, Thomas Jessup, as a slaveholder himself, as a Kentuckian, he was adamant about following through on that promise, even after they had been to, to Oklahoma. So it was a genuine commitment on his part, not just a, a battlefield expediency, which is kind of funny from the guy who would, would take people prisoners under uh, flags of truth that uh, that he made sure that that happened. And I don't know whether that really falls under any of the classic kind of strategies, you know, that sort of element of, of, of taking, you know, the black part of that population and just giving them their freedom in Oklahoma. And so you'd have to kind of blend together a couple into a hybrid in order to come up with a, with a really good explanation for why things were worked out the way they did. And today we always say the enemy gets a vote. So what was the what was the strategy that uh, the U.S. Army's enemy, the Seminole, employed? Exhaustion, annihilation, attrition, etc. Yeah. So uh, I, I think that probably you know here would be the, the clearest thing would be to say that it's uh, um, uh, exhaustion in terms of going after the the will to continue the fight because there was never any sense that they were going to be able to win through through physical attrition in terms that they were not going to be able to, to kill enough of the soldiers who came down you know, to go after them. And in, indeed, I think the battlefield casualties for the regular army were, I, I want to say, only in like the low 300s. So that was never going to be a part, although as we discussed earlier, their ally of the environment um, carried off a lot more soldiers than Seminole warriors ever did. But uh, a lot of it was, I guess we just say, you know, resistance and staying alive and staying in the field. That was really the, their only option and that uh, they never had the means to, to, to strike a blow directly at the American public's will through some sort of spectacular uh, attack that would, uh, would, would break the resistance. It was more indifference was kind of their ally in this case than, than actually being able to directly erode willpower. The British military strategist Little Hart said the purpose of war is to build a better peace. It's the name of the Army War College's podcast. He favored an indirect approach to achieve it. Which approach did the Army employ for the Second Seminole War, direct or indirect, or a combination of both? Uh, I would say that it was definitely direct in the sense that Bell Hart, as he was kind of saying that there should be the, uh, you know, the classic British maritime strategy of keeping a strong, strong navy, and then giving money to other people in order to fight, you know, their wars and maintain a balance of power on, on Europe. You didn't really have the opportunity to do that from the army perspective. Now they did have, you know, the Creeks, you know, were some some Indian allies, but that was never going to. You know, they didn't have a proxy to work with in the way that kind of the Del Hart wanted in terms of the classic British application of, of the indirect strategy. Now, another aspect of it was that he did say that, you know, that the British going after the kind of the sinews of war in terms of commerce and the economics, that does have a direct um, correlation in the, in, in the army approach of going, I mean, the food fight strategy of going after subsistence. But uh, it was not going to be, conditions were not in place in order to have a indirect strategy lead to a pure uh, outcome like the, uh, the army would have wanted or would have been needed to do. And the other thing is, it's one thing to keep a balance of power through an indirect strategy. But when you're talking about a maximalist de demand of, of forcing the entire people to move and relocate to a place they don't want to go, there's limits to the indirect strategy, usually when it's a limited aim or you're asking something from the, the enemy that is something that they can give in to. 
then it's possible. But when you're asking the people to essentially destroy their way of life, uh, that's going to have to be something that is done at the point of a bayonet in a very direct way. We're begging the question by saying the object of war is to build a better peace. A better peace for whom? The Seminoles' better peace was that they get left alone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the strategy of resistance is entirely appropriate for that. Right. So that resistance, though, in order to, for the Seminole to build the better peace, direct, indirect, combination of both. What did we see from the Seminole? Well, and this is where the split within their demographics between pure native Seminoles and some of the, the Afro-Indians and the Maroons. The better peace for the latter groups could have been peace, and they weren't necessarily as tied to the the locality of, of, of Florida. And so, guarantee of freedom in Oklahoma—that's a better peace from their you know their perspective. For the Seminoles who wanted to stay, or for Afro Indians who just didn't believe that the the army and and the settlers would fall through on their promises, which in some cases that was a well-found um, suspicion. It was about staying in Florida for those groups. And so there was a, uh, the demands were, were not consistent across the, the Seminoles and, and there was some success from the U.S. Army side in, in exploiting those and giving the people what they wanted. Or in, in the one case where you couldn't reconcile the demands of the two groups and so it had to be brought to, to some sort of, of, of violent end. The Army forced some direct engagements and with Dade, the Seminole forced the direct engagement. But for the most part, they found it was better to take the indirect approach, which was raiding, which was ambushing, which was skirmishes, and then boogieing. Which approach do you think was most appropriate for the Seminole? On this one, the, the evidence seems pretty clear in that, um, you know, not just you know, with Okeechobee, which, you know, was, was, was a, a, a loss for them, but actually in Dade, where they were tactically successful, I mean, you know, in destroying the command, you know, that actually had a counterproductive effect in bringing down the, the army in, a, in large numbers and increasing the pressure upon them. So, you know, it's, it's a great example of a, of a tactical victory might not necessarily lead to the you know, strategic result that you want because of the dynamics of, of politics and policy. And the Army preferred a direct approach, but ended up with an indirect approach at times during the war. Discuss what that indirect approach was. They learned that, um, you know, as much as it would have been um, both within their, their, their competence to have a, a nice stand-up fight and to, you know, resolve it in a single day so they could all kind of go home, the Seminoles just were not going to cooperate uh, in doing that. And so then you start seeing a lot of patrols that are going out in order to maintain pressure, you know, keeping cattle, definitely growing crops requires a protected place that you can you can plant and that you can reap by the army maintaining pressure through small unit patrols. You know, Taylor, uh, I believe, was the one who, who divided the area up into a lot of different areas and just made sure that, you know, sub-areas where their patrols were going to be conducted regularly and maintaining that, that pressure. And then once they started doing it year-round, they went from, you know, no longer taking the summer hiatus, but going in and, and throughout the entire year keeping pressure on the Seminoles. That eventually going after and, and burning crops, burning households, slaughtering the cattle or taking them off, that was eventually what drove the, on the Seminole part that they were willing to kind of deal with the, the reduced freedoms that they were kind of penned in a little bit because the Army had pushed them back. And then the Army side and the government side, they just kind of finally gave up and, and they did no longer wanted to pursue the total removal of the people. And so we, both sides kind of started petering out there towards the end and were very happy to have peace uh, 
as the Second Seminole War ended. I mentioned the Army War College's War Room podcast, The Better Peace. You have a part to play in that. Please talk about that. So War Room is our online journal, armywarcollege.warroom.edu, or just Googling War Room War College uh, can find both our articles, a short, you know, 1,800-word take. Most of my role as a senior editor was in, in article acquisition and editing. Unfortunately, I have now left the editorial staff. We also have the podcast side, uh, which I did a couple of interviews for, and, uh, and there we have all sorts of, of interesting topics about strategy, the relation of war and society. They're all within, you know, 20, 25 minutes short take and so uh, something I think that a lot of your listeners would probably be interested uh, in uh, if they're interested in the Seminole War as well. And they can subscribe, so they get the notifications of new episodes or new articles pushed to them. Yes, yes. And that comes out for both articles and the, the podcast, as you said. We, most weeks we release about one or two podcasts, one or two articles, and there's definitely a lot of new content to keep up with, and so subscribing is a great way of doing that. People could go to Amazon to get your book, Preparing for War. What's your next book going to be about, and when do we expect that it will be published? So my uh, working title right now is uh, Acts of Madness, uh, U.S. Politics, Policy, and Strategy in the Pacific, 1898 to 1941. And uh, I'm still in the early stages of that, and I'm about ready to return to the uh, the Pentagon for an assignment there where uh, they're going to keep me pretty busy. So it's probably going to be about 2023 before we get to that. Uh, I, I hope to see that out here in, in the next few years. And talking about a lot of the same issues we just both spoke about today, but in the context of uh, the U.S., in the, the Pacific and talking about both the State Department, the Navy, and the Army, and so not just a, a, a ground-focused. You've also co-written a book on European defense? Yes. So uh, we have a study uh, that we conducted when I was a member of the uh, Strategic Studies Institute, which is another part of the Army War College. So that uh, should be uh, coming out any time now. We've been going through our final edits, and it is a, uh, a look at how the U.S. Army should position itself in Europe in uh, 2028 to reflect the new national defense strategy. I said earlier in the podcast, a little bit flippantly, why are we teaching strategy to cadets who should be learning tactics? When one goes to the Army War College, they should be learning strategy. What's the benefits of an Army War College education to senior lieutenant colonels and colonels in the Army or in the military today? You refer to, uh, you know, Liddell Hart earlier on and, and uh you know, one of his notions was grand strategy is supposed to lead to a better peace, as you had said. One of the things we concentrated on here, and this was, you know, was brought out so well in, in this, this conversation, was the intersection between the politics and policy, between diplomacy, the military element, economics, and then also uh, there's now an increasing emphasis on what we call, you know, informational part of, of national power. But, uh, you know, you saw it within the Second Seminole War in terms of uh, the way that they were messaging. Uh, at one point, Gaines complained that, you know, papers were printing his war plans, and so the Seminoles were going to be able to see it, which is an interesting indication of, of how sophisticated the Seminoles were in, in keeping track that he was worried that a New Orleans paper was going to give away his plans. All of those elements need to be brought together. You just can't focus on the military tactics, because uh, that's probably, unless you're very, very fortunate, is not going to lead to the, the kind of outcome that the government and the, and the public expects. So going to the War College gets you out of an operational mindset that these senior officers would have been, which is, let's win the campaign. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And one of the, the, the jokes that we, we have is if, hey, well, let's just turn out the tactics first, and then we'll figure out everything else. Uh, you know, let's, let's start bottom up. Uh, almost never really works. Something that I, I know that you can you can appreciate as well from your own experience. And so you have to keep the big view in mind. Uh, and some of the folks as a as an army strategist, I've I've been fortunate to serve in, in a number of, of roles where I've been able to see that before. But you know, some of my classmates have you know, spent their entire life in, in you know brigade combat teams and below. It's not that that's unimportant, um, but that's only part of the picture. And so they're going to get a chance. You know, they get the chance here to to see some other things that they haven't had a chance to see. Uh, earlier in their career. There's a fine line because some would say, well, if you're in the military and you're advising the elected or confirmed civilian leaders, you should just keep to the military strategy and not go out of your lane. The civilian leaders will make the political choices. But in order for them to make these political choices, they need to be informed of strategy ramifications, and some of that may bleed outside of the military realm. Is that type of thinking brought out in a war college education? That is one of the uh, uh, the, the ongoing discussions throughout the year. Uh, the great example of this in, in the Second Seminole War is the Army, as you mentioned before, you know, continually saying, "Hey, you know, if we if we relax our demands a little bit, this thing will probably end either now or it'll be brought to a much quicker conclusion." But there's with uh, Elliot Cohen, one of the prominent scholars of civil military relations, calls the unequal dialogue. At the end of the day, it's up to the president and, you know, in the period that we've been discussing, the Secretary of War, now Secretary of Defense, determine what we're going to do. But, you know, as you say, you know, the military has to be able to kind of explain, hey, these are the options, these are the ramifications of some of your policy choices, and here's my ability to give you what you want, or in some cases, I'm just not going to be able to do that. And so you, we probably need to have some sort of negotiation with the civilian master always being the, the final decider about what is possible and how can we do it. And that's that's definitely, that's kind of the focus of the second book is that discussion amongst politics, policy, and strategy. J.P. Clark, thanks for joining us for the Seminole Wars. Well, thank you very much for having me. It was a great discussion, and, and I hope your, your listeners enjoy it. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.